Welcome to East and West, a show for helping us keep our spiritual bearings as we navigate this world around us. Wes Young here, continuing season four, an audiobook presentation of Undyne by Friedrich de Lamotte Fouquet. If you are joining us for the first time, I strongly advise starting season four at the beginning with season four, episode one. Now, today's episode is Undyne chapter nine. We're very close to the end of the book. This is the second to the last chapter. As a quick recap, in chapter eight, Huldbrand, the knight, Undyne, his wife, and Bertalda, his lady friend, take a boating trip on the Danube. Uncle Kuhlborn, the water spirit, bothers them all along the way, and Undyne, like Christ, continues to rebuke and calm the raging seas. The trouble comes, though, when Huldbrand loses his temper with all these spiritual annoyances and curses Undyne, which causes her banishment back to the water, back to the land of water spirits. Undyne gives Huldbrand one last warning, stay faithful to me. For a time, the regretful Huldbrand does. He does, in fact, stay faithful. But by the end of chapter 8, he has given in to the Lady Bertalda, and he's joined himself to her in marriage. Now let us continue with Undyne, chapter 9. It was between night and dawn of day that Huldbrand was lying on his couch, half waking and half sleeping. Whenever he attempted to compose himself to sleep, a terror came upon him and scared him, as if his slumbers were haunted with specters. But he made an effort to rouse himself fully. He felt fanned as by the wings of a swan, and lulled as by the murmuring of waters, till in sweet confusion of the senses he sank back into his state of half-consciousness. At last, however, he must have fallen perfectly asleep, for he seemed to be lifted up by the wings of the swans and to be wafted far away over land and sea, while their music swelled on his ear most sweetly. The music of the swan! The song of the swan! He could not but repeat to himself every moment, Is it not a sure foreboding of death? Probably, however, it had yet another meaning. All at once he seemed to be hovering over the Mediterranean Sea. A swan sang melodiously in his ear, that this was the Mediterranean Sea, and while he was looking down upon the waves, they became transparent as crystal, so that he could see through them to the very bottom. At this, a thrill of delight shot through him, for he could see Undyne, where she was sitting beneath the clear crystal dome. It is true she was weeping very bitterly, and looked much sadder than in those happy days when they lived together at the Castle Ringstetet, both on their arrival and afterward. Just before they set out upon their fatal passage down the Danube, the knight could not help thinking upon all this with deep emotion, but it did not appear that Undyne was aware of his presence. Kilborn had meanwhile approached her and was about to reprove her for weeping when she drew herself up and looked upon him with an air so majestic and commanding that he almost shrank back. Although I now dwell here beneath the waters, said she, yet... I have brought my soul with me, and therefore I may weep. Little as you can know what such tears are, they are blessed, and everything is blessed to one gifted with a true soul. He shook his head incredulously, and after some thought he replied, And yet, niece, you are subject to our laws, as a being of the same nature with ourselves. And should he prove unfaithful to you and marry again, you are obliged to take away his life. 
He remains a widower to this very hour, replied Undine, and I am still dear to his sorrowful heart. He is, however, betrothed, said Kilborn with a laugh of scorn, and let only a few days wear away, and then comes the priest with his nuptial blessings. And then you must go up to the death of the husband with two wives. I have not the power, returned Undine with a smile. I, I have sealed up the fountain securely against myself and all of my race. Still, should he leave his castle, said Kilborn, or should he once allow the fountain to be uncovered, what then? For he thinks little enough of these things. Well, for that very reason, said Undine, still smiling amid her tears, for that very reason he is at this moment hovering in spirit over the Mediterranean Sea and dreaming of this warning which our discourse gives him. I thoughtfully planned all this. That instant, Kilborn, inflamed with rage, looked up at the night, wrathfully threatened him, stamped on the ground, and then shot like an arrow beneath the waves. He seemed to swell in his fury to the size of a whale. Again, the swans began to sing, to wave their wings and fly. The night seemed to soar away over the mountains and streams, and at last to alight at Castle Ringstetet and to awake on his couch. Upon his couch, he actually did awake, and his attendant, entering at the same moment, informed him that Father Heilman was still lingering in the neighborhood that he had the evening before met with him in the forest, where he was sheltering himself under a hut, which he had formed by interweaving the branches of trees and covering them with moss and fine brushwood, and that to the question what he was doing there, since he would not give the marriage blessing, his answer was, There are many other blessings than those given at marriages, uh, and though I did not come to officiate at the wedding, I may still officiate at a very different solemnity. All things have their seasons. We must be ready for them all. Besides, marrying and mourning are by no means so very unlike, as everyone not willfully blinded must know full well. The knight made many bewildered reflections on these words and on his dream. But it is very difficult to give up a thing which we have once looked upon as certain. So all continued as had been arranged previously. Should I relate to you how passed the marriage feast at Castle Ringstetet? It would be as if you saw a heap of bright and pleasant things, but all overspread with a black morning crepe, through whose darkening veil their brilliancy would appear but a mockery of the nothingness of all earthly joys. It was not that any spectral delusion disturbed the scene of festivity, for the castle, as we well know, had been secured against the mischief of water spirits. But the knight, the fisherman, and all the guests were unable to banish the feeling that the chief personage of the feast was still wanting, and that this chief personage could be no other than the gentle and beloved Undine. Whenever a door was heard to open, all eyes were involuntarily turned in that direction. And if it was nothing but the steward with new dishes or the cupbearer with a supply of wine of higher flavor than the last, they again looked down in sadness and disappointment, while the flashes of wit and merriment which had been passing at times from one to another were extinguished by tears of mournful remembrance. The bride was the least thoughtful of the company, and therefore the most happy. But even to her, it sometimes seemed strange that she should be sitting at the head of the table, wearing a green wreath and gold-embroidered robe, while Undine was lying a corpse, stiff and cold, at the bottom of the Danube, 
or carried out by the current into the ocean. For ever since her father has suggested something of this sort, his words were continually sounding in her ear, and this day in particular they would neither fade from her memory nor yield to other thoughts. Evening had scarcely arrived when the company returned to their homes, not dismissed by the impatience of the bridegroom, as wedding parties are sometimes broken up, but constrained solely by heavy sadness and forebodings of evil. Bertalda retired with her maidens and the knight with his attendants to undress, but there was no gay laughing company of bridesmaids and bridesmen at this mournful festival. Bertalda wished to awaken more cheerful thoughts. She ordered her maidens to spread before her a brilliant set of jewels, a present from Huldbrand, together with rich apparel and veils, that she might select from among them the brightest and most beautiful for her dress in the morning. The attendants rejoiced at this opportunity of pouring forth good wishes and promises of happiness to their young mistress, and failed not to extol the beauty of the bride with the most glowing eloquence. This went on for a long time until Bertalda at last, looking in a mirror, said with a sigh, ah, But do you not see plainly how freckled I am growing? Look here on the side of my neck. They looked at the place and found the freckles indeed, as their fair mistress had said, but they called them mere beauty spots, the faintest touches of the sun, such as would only heighten the whiteness of her delicate complexion. Bertalda shook her head and still viewed them as a blemish. And I could remove them, she said at last, sighing. Oh, but the castle fountain is covered, from which I formerly used to have that precious water, so purifying to the skin. Oh, had I this evening only a single flask of it. Is that all? cried an alert waiting maid, laughing as she glided out of the apartment. She will not be so foolish, said Bertalda, well pleased and surprised as to cause the stone cover of the fountain to be taken off this very evening. That instant they heard the tread of men passing along the courtyard, and could see from the window where the officious maiden was leading them directly up to the fountain, and that they carried levers and other instruments on their shoulders. It is certainly my will, said Bertalda with a smile, if it does not take them too long. And pleased with the thought that a word from her was now sufficient to accomplish what had formerly been refused with a painful reproof, she looked down upon their operations in the bright, moonlit castle court. The men raised the enormous stone with an effort. Someone of the number indeed would occasionally sigh when he recollected they were destroying the work of their former beloved mistress. Their labor, however, was much lighter than they had expected. It seemed as if some power from within the fountain itself aided them in raising the stone. It appears, said the workmen to one another in astonishment, as if the confined water had become a springing fountain, and the stone rose more and more, and almost without the assistance of the workpeople, it rolled slowly down upon the pavement with a hollow sound. But an appearance from the opening of the fountain filled them with awe, as it rose like a white column of water. At first they imagined it really to be the fountain, until they perceived the rising form to be a pale female, veiled in white, she wept bitterly, raised her hands above her head, wringing them sadly, as with slow and solemn steps she moved toward the castle. The servants shrank back and fled from the spring, while the bride, pale and motionless with horror, stood with her maidens at the window. When the figure had now come close beneath their room, it looked up to them, sobbing, and Bertalda thought she recognized through the veil the pale features of Undine. But the morning form passed on, sad, reluctant, and lingering, 
as if going to the place of execution. Bertalda screamed to her maids to call the knight. Not one of them dared to stir from her place, and even the bride herself became again mute, as if trembling at the sound of her own voice. While they continued standing at the window, motionless as statues, the mysterious wanderer had entered the castle, ascended the well-known stairs, and traversed the well-known halls in silent tears. Alas, how different had she once passed through these rooms. The knight had in the meantime dismissed his attendants. Half undressed and in deep dejection, he was standing before a large mirror. A wax taper burned dimly beside him. At this moment, someone tapped at his door very, very softly. Undyne had formerly tapped in this way when she was playing some of her endearing wiles. It is all an illusion, said he to himself. I must to my nuptial bed. Oh, you must indeed. But to a cold one, he heard a voice choked with sobs repeat from without. And then he saw in the mirror the door of his room was slowly, slowly opened and the white figure entered and gently closed it behind her. They have opened the spring, said she in a low tone, and now I am here and you must die. He felt in his failing breath that this must indeed be, but covering his eyes with his hands, he cried, Do not in my death hour, do not make me mad with terror. If that veil conceals hideous features, do not lift it. Take my life, but let me not see you. Alas! replied the pale figure. Will you not then look upon me once more? I am as fair now as when you wooed me on the island. Oh, if it indeed were so, sighed Huldbrand, and that I might die by a kiss from you. Most willingly, my own love, said she. She threw back her veil. Heavenly fair shone forth her pure countenance. Trembling with love, the awe of approaching death, the knight leant towards her. She kissed him with a holy kiss, but she relaxed not her hold, pressing him more closely in her arms and weeping as if she would weep away her soul. Tears rushed into the knight's eyes while a thrill both of bliss and agony shot through his heart until he at last expired, sinking softly back from her fair arms upon the pillow of his couch, a corpse. I have wept him to death death, said she to some domestics who met her in the antechamber, and passing through the terrified group, she went slowly out and disappeared into the fountain. Well, well, you don't see that in the Disney version now, do you? Bet you didn't expect that. Rather a morbid chapter, and of course we'll have more to say about it, but you know, there's only two pages left in the book. Chapter 10 is only two pages long, and so what I'll do is the next episode will be the final episode, read chapter 10, and then have a good commentary on what it might mean, what we might read into it, what it might say to us, and what Fouquet was going for. Fun fact about chapter 9, I don't know if you could tell any difference in my voice or pacing or whatever as I read, that was the first episode of season 4 that was recorded in front of a, I guess you'd call it live studio audience, only it was more like a live classroom audience. I was trying to inspire my students to look into podcasting as a genre of writing, as a type of literature, which is exactly what it is. I totally spoiled the ending of Undyne for them because they were picking up at chapter 9, having not followed along up until then. But we did a live recording, and uh, I still got to go back and edit out some things, you know, sniffle here 
or cough there, intercom came on here, or air conditioner there, whatever. But it was a lot of fun doing it in front of them, and who knows, there might be the next great podcaster in the midst. Never knew how a podcast was made, now they do, and hopefully it influenced them in some way. Or if they never knew how the original Little Mermaid ended, now they can be good and sad along with the rest of us. Thank you for listening to Chapter 9 of Undyne, and I look forward to the season finale next week. Stay strong, everybody.